northwest portion of this land of ours is Montana, the treasure state, third largest among the states of the Union. Great names in Montana's history are Lewis and Clark, whose expedition up the Missouri led them through this region, which the French had called the land of the shining mountains. We're ready. Huh? Fantastic. Good morning. My name's John Engen. Thank you for taking the time to join us this morning. Uh, we uh, are lucky to uh, be um, enjoying the hospitality of our friends here at First Interstate Bank. This is, a, this is a great corner in Missoula as well, and the views here are spectacular, and what's going on in this building in terms of commerce is spectacular as well. I don't often read from remarks, but today I will, uh, simply because I want to make sure that I say what I mean to say. This is John Engen. John's the mayor of Missoula. In the west central section of Montana is Missoula, a trading center for a rich agricultural area. Missoula is a picturesque little city in western Montana. A very long time ago, during the last ice age, it was all at the bottom of a giant glacial lake. So the whole town sits on a very flat valley floor with the Clark Fork River running right through the center. Steep mountainsides circle the edge of the valley and you can still see the coastlines of the old lake etched into their faces. Missoula's roots are as a lumbering town and a trading center. The town is right at the nexus point of five valleys that are all loaded with natural resources and productive farmland. And that turned it into the central hub for all of Western Montana. After a while, the town also got Montana's first state university, which drove even more growth in the community and added a distinctly liberal arts vibe to the old Western town over the decades. In the last 10 or 15 years, Missoula has become an increasingly trendy place to move, and the town has been undergoing a constant transformative facelift to cater to the new population of marketing workers and tech bros who want to come out west and play just as hard as they work. Mayor Angan is holding this press conference we're listening to in 2016, and he's there to talk about the fate of one of the most iconic buildings in Missoula. Right at the heart of downtown Missoula is the corner of Higgins Avenue and Front Street. Basically, as long as Missoula has been here, that corner has been the center of it. The character of it was largely created in the 1890s and the early 1900s in Missoula's old frontier glory days. And a lot of the big historic buildings built there remained on that corner in some form or another, into the 21st century. At this press conference, John Angan is addressing the future of one of those iconic buildings, a big, two-story, block-sized brick department store everyone in town just called the Merck. From the early frontier days into the 1960s, the Merck housed the Missoula Mercantile Company a massive homegrown retail and grocery store that was the economic engine of the region. But at the point of this conference with the mayor, the Merck was essentially a vacant, 
old brick department store full of asbestos and dead pigeons. It had gone through a bunch of different owners in the latter half of the 20th century. So when I was a little boy in the 1960s growing up in Missoula, Montana, uh, the mercantile was a place. I remember visiting the store with my dad, who's now gone, who would scour boxes of sink parts downstairs in the hardware department looking for that obscure piece that would make the weird sink in our little house on South 2nd Street work for another week or two. Uh, I remember sitting on Santa's lap upstairs in that building and ha I have a picture of my dad who one year decided to sit on Santa's lap himself in an effort to make me laugh uh, and it worked. I remember the best piece of candy of my life which uh, came from a jar in the mercantile that was surrounded by lots of other jars of candy as I recall. It was an orange stick with white stripes. My mother bought it for me. She had one too and I think it was her favorite piece of candy as well and I remember years later buying shirts at the Bon Marche with my own money. Then as a grown-up married man I bought furniture from the Bon. And even later I bought a coat from Macy's and I don't remember a lot about the building frankly. But I remember the people and the place. I remember the time, the activity, the smells, the sounds, the tastes, the laughs, the smiles. As Mayor Angan is talking about here, the mercantile building occupied this kind of special place in the collective Missoula consciousness. That corner and the Merc building specifically has always been Missoula's beating heart, so to speak, its social and economic center. And generations of Missoulians, long before John Angan's childhood in the 60s, have framed the changes in their lives against the changes on that intersection and in that building. But for years, it's been empty. And the mayor is naturally tired of prime real estate in a largely revitalized downtown sitting empty and decrepit. Those dead pigeons certainly aren't bringing in any property taxes. And if I had my druthers, which I don't, some days I would turn back the clock and I'd eat that piece of candy all over again as a little boy with my mother or hold my dad's hand while waiting in line to talk to Santa Claus about my desires or be the young married man buying furnishings for his first home, and if I had my druthers, we'd figure out a way to return an old, cobbled-together center of commerce to its former rustic glory. But after six years of folks kicking tires and dashing hopes, the practical matter is that the perfect is the enemy of the good, and what is before us is a good project. The project you're going to learn about today is a good project. I appreciate the emotion that comes with the idea of an old building coming down. The project Engen is talking about is a plan to tear down the old building and replace it with a block-sized Marriott with a bunch of boutiques and bougie restaurants on the ground floor. Many people were, and still are, kind of upset about it. The nostalgia for the Merc is less about the building itself and more about what the building represents, those Old West frontier glory days. 
People saw the Merc as kind of like this old, dilapidated temple, honoring Western Montana's own heroic origin myth. And the anger at replacing that crumbling remnant with a bland, new, modern commercial block sparked a grassroots movement within the community to oppose it. Something uh, that I kicked up that I think is pretty representative of that community anger, at one point there's a group called uh, Preserve Historic Missoula, and they drafted a fundraising letter to try and raise money to uh, mount a legal challenge against the demolition of the mercantile. And in that fundraising letter, at one point they write, The mercantile represents our community, as it has since the beginning in 1885, as a symbol of progress. The current owners see progress as an anonymous glass and brick chain hotel. Is this the character we seek in our downtown? But the building is not the icon for me. That corner, though, is iconic. And the people who conducted their business there, the proprietors, the clerks, the customers, the bankers, the accountants, the corporations, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the folks who made that corner something, are gone. The building is empty, and its ghosts ought to be sad because their want to haunt someone alive in a place that's vibrant. Inevitably, the developer's vision of progress was more persuasive to city government than a simple grassroots citizens' movement. And within a year of this conference, the 150-year-old building was torn down. I remember people came to the site and took home bricks, their own little relics from the demolished temple. That hotel is up now. The developers who built it are from Bozeman, and I have to say, it is the most Bozeman building you can possibly imagine. There's a little bougie steakhouse in the bottom. There's a Thai restaurant. I think there's at least two of those boutique stores where you can get like the t-shirt with the outline of the state of Montana with all the roots coming out of it. But I think it's interesting that both Mayor Angan and the Save the Merc people invoke the history of the building and that intersection to argue their side of things. The preservationists want to honor the character, the old rustic glory, as Angan called it, of the place, the local ownership of it at its height. And Angan essentially, I guess, argues that the spectral capitalists and customers of years past simply can't stand to see the lack of business being done. Both sides hold up the Merc and that corner as the symbol of progress that reflects the ebb and flow of prosperity in the town. This project brings commerce, it brings life, it brings people to a place that deserves all of that and more. The community will benefit, the past will be honored, and history will be made every day in a new building, in an old place that will last for another hundred years. What happened in the Missoula Mercantile Building is pretty representative of what's happening across Montana right now. 
The state is seeing a huge influx of new residents coming in and a wave of new development. The rustic old empire is dying and the new anonymous brick and glass world is being built on top of it. Angen says the Marriott will honor the history of the old mercantile, but the real history of that building, of the corporations, customers, and ne'er-do-wells that John Angen was talking about, the real history of that symbol of progress that the preservationists were talking about, is much more complicated than those rose-colored invocations would suggest. And it's a history that raises big questions about what progress looks like in Montana and who's entitled to it. And did they, did they, did the Missoula Mercantile have commercial enterprises in other communities too? Oh yes. When they built Western Montana, and that's a story all of itself. I'm John Hooks. And I'm Matt Newman. And this is Land Grab. Hey, hello, podcast listener, and welcome to Land Grab. This is it. We're here. Season one, getting off the bat. John Hooks, as I said earlier, here with my good friend Matt Newman. Matt here. Land Grab is a podcast about the history of Montana, the place, and the idea. We're hoping that by taking some deep dives, into the rich troves of lore that are buried in treasure state history, we can maybe reveal a thing or two about some of the current problems that are affecting the state. Because one thing about Montana history, it is nothing if not cyclical. Our entry point into this season is something that has been dominating a lot of the news in Montana and the rest of the West for years now. And that's essentially gentrification. So I've started to hear people say, I'll never be able to buy a house in Missoula, Montana. Housing scarcity has been an issue in Whitefish for years. 50,000 people are expected to move to Bozeman in the next 20 years. An ever-growing tide of new residents has been moving into the famously unpopulated state for decades now. But it's really exploded over the last few years, and during the pandemic especially. And these new residents almost always have a good deal more money than the average Montanan, and want a lot of space for themselves that they couldn't get in whatever city they came from, but also want to bring all of the amenities of the city along with them. As a result, housing prices have skyrocketed, and a transformative wave of development has radically changed the face of the state. It's a big part of the reason why nobody can afford to buy a house or pay rent 
in uh, Missoula or Bozeman or Kalispell or Great Falls or just about anywhere in Montana right now. It's a big reason why real estate like the Merck Building makes a really attractive target for a high-end hotel developer. And I think a really visceral way in which we see and feel these changes happening all around us is when you get these beloved local institutions like the Merck, uh, honorable mentions for, you know, the Old Post, the Windbag in Helena gets my personal RIP shout out. I know there still technically is a place called the Windbag in Helena, but it's not the Windbag. But we have to watch these old beloved local institutions get torn down. And Montanans feel like a part of our soul, part of our history, part of our memory built around and in those places goes down with them. We did a whole prologue episode that goes into a lot more depth about this stuff and its roots in Montana's historical mythos. You should check it out if you haven't. I won't say that you absolutely have to put the brakes on this episode and go back and listen to it. You can get everything you need out of season one without listening to the prologue, but it definitely will help expand some of the some of the things that we'll be talking about here. For this first full season, we wanted to dig into the roots of these issues in Montana, to understand the origins of real estate in the West, and to look back to a previous time when a huge population increase and development boom radically changed the state in a short period of time. We started looking into the homestead boom in the first two decades of the 1900s, when more than 100,000 people flooded into Montana from across the country and around the world. As we looked into this period, we zeroed in on a part of it that we had previously known almost nothing about, the forced opening of the state's Indian reservations to white settlement. In Montana, and I think pretty much everywhere in America, Anyone can buy property and live on Indian reservations, including non-tribal members. In Montana, especially in non-reservation communities, I think that's mostly pretty much taken for granted as a fairly normal thing that no one even really thinks too much about. I remember learning the kind of sanitized explanation for why that is when I was in elementary school in Helena. My teacher had spent a couple years living on the Crow Reservation in Montana and spun the whole thing as this sort of progressive sign of reconciliation and cooperation after Montana's long history of conflict and colonization. But, as we're going to end up saying again and again throughout this show, the real history, the real explanation, is much more complicated than that. In order to open tribal reservation lands and the resources on them up to white farmers, businessmen, and the American capitalist way, the government pushed through laws designed to eliminate the communal ownership of indigenous lands and instead divided the land to individual tribal members with small 80 to 160 acre plots, leaving the hundreds of thousands of acres, so-called surplus reservation land, open for white settlement. And make no mistake, This Allotment Act was specifically designed to assimilate indigenous people into white society to the point that they no longer existed as a distinct type. That's right. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, famed progressive reformer, uh, referred to the Allotment Act as a, quote, 
great pulverizing engine to break up the tribal morass. In this season, we're focusing on the opening of the Flathead Reservation in western Montana specifically. The Flathead Reservation is located in the southern part of the Flathead Lake region, just northwest of Missoula, and is the home of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. The reservation was formed by the Hellgate Treaty in 1855 and is characterized by two dominant natural features, the Mission Mountains and Flathead Lake. The whole area is one of the most scenic places in the world. I mean, this, this was the place, and I always say this is the place of the bones of our ancestors. And when you come up over that hill at Ravalli and you first see those, those Mission Mountains, there's, um, there's something inside me, and I know in lots of other tribal members that just says, ah, I'm home. This is where I'm supposed to be. This is Steve Lozar. Steve taught anthropology at Salish Kootenai College for 30 years and served on the tribal council for years as well. These days, he runs a screen printing business, operates his own homegrown Montana brewing museum, has an incredible handlebar mustache, and is just an all-around super cool dude. First thing I'd say is Hesquex and Kisukukit, and uh, that is uh, a welcome or a good morning in um, in both Salish and Kootenai, and uh, and it kind of sets the stage for uh, for who I am and um, and who my extended family has been and continues to be, and um, it also speaks uh, just those two greetings speak to. Um, What's very, very fundamental to myself and to most tribal members um, that were born and raised on reservations, uh, this one in particular, the, the Salish, Ponderay, and Kootenai people are, um, are indigenous people to this, this area. And um, it is how we, um, how we view the world. And um, I was born in 1949 in St. Ignatius at the old Indian hospital down there, the Jesuits and the um, and the Earthlines, and uh, as was uh, most of my family, my dad included. Um, my mother is from the Fort Peck Reservation in eastern Montana, where she was born and raised. Um, the uh, uh, Dixon is my my hometown, and um, I always refer to it as the Fort Lauderdale of the reservation. It's, uh, it's a warm place. We grow melons in Dixon. Right. We sat down for a long interview with Steve at Salish Kootenai College earlier this year. You're going to hear from him throughout the show. Um, often our, um, um, our, our grandmother would tell us kids to uh, take, take a pinch of dirt and put it on your tongue. And um, that always re- uh, uh, reminds you of who you are and where you came from. Um, the importance of the land when, um, in my family, when we lose somebody, um, we have a place for our family up in these mountains. And, uh, and we go up there, and part of our morning is we, we clean off a spot um, and take our shirt off and just press our body into that dirt and just let that dirt be part of our healing process. That's how important it is to us. When they signed the Hellgate Treaty in 1855, the Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay, who 
who make up the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, reserved the 1.25 million acres of the reservation for their, quote, exclusive use and benefit. But in 1910, Missoula's business and political elite used the allotment process to force the reservation open to white settlement over the steadfast resistance of the tribes, and about a million acres went into non-tribal hands. We're going to focus on the Flathead Reservation because that's the region that we know best, and it's because it's a part of the state, including Missoula, Polson, Whitefish, and Kalispell, where the influx and problems of today are really pronounced, so the parallels with history are really just stacked right on top of each other. But we're also focusing on the Flathead because what we learned is that this event, the opening of this reservation, is a key part in a larger story. A story about the real foundations of Western Montana. One that complicates much of our own heroic origin myth. And one that, in a lot of ways, has been scrubbed from our history. It's a story about the beginnings of the state's real estate industry and the first generation of Eastern transplants that started it. And it's a story whose other epicenter outside of the reservation is that old brick building on the corner of Higgins and Front. We're going to tell you the story of the tribes that would become the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes and the cabal of frontier capitalists that would become the Missoula Mercantile Company. But more than that, we're going to tell you the story of the imposition of the 20th century in western Montana. The 20th century we're still dealing with, still cleaning up after, and still in danger of repeating. It's a story that we've spent six months researching and reporting. We've talked to historians, scholars, experts, even normal people, and we've read thousands of pages of historical documents and scholarship. And we've spent many tedious hours collecting archival tape and looking over old correspondences in the archives, trying to decipher some hieroglyphic old cursive. You'll hear from a number of different sources in this show, and we'll introduce them to you as they come up. But at the start here, we want to say the sources that you'll hear from in this show are individuals, and they're speaking for themselves, offering perspectives based on their own experiences and expertise. If you want to stick around until the very end of the episode, we'll talk more about our sources and places that you can learn more about this stuff from. Throughout the show, we will also definitely be offering our own conclusions, interpretations, and even speculations, and those are all our own as well. One of the voices you'll hear throughout the show, who we got to introduce up top, is our sage old guide through Montana history, K. Ross Toole. We just call him K. Ross, because we like to think we're friends of his at this point. If you listen to the pilot, you've heard him already, but K. Ross is a Montana history legend. He ran the Historical Society and taught at UM for about 15 years. In the 70s and 80s, about half of UM students would go through his class, Montana and the West, in any four-year period. In 1981, his final lectures were taped and turned into a series on MQTV, 
we've drawn from this voluminous archive, and K. Ross is going to be our constant, insightful, and at times ornery guide throughout this process. The professor of history tries, usually unsuccessfully, to be objective. I don't make any attempt to be objective in here at all. I am biased, I am prejudiced, I am bigoted, I am one-sided, and I am subjective. And as the man said, I have made up my mind and I do not now want to be confused with the facts. So without further ado, we'll get started on our first chapter. In this first episode, laying the groundwork for the season, we're going to talk about the days before Montana was a state or even a territory, and about how the Flathead Reservation came to be. We're going to talk about the Aboriginal people of Montana, and how they lived for tens of thousands of years before the pressures of American colonial expansion arrived. And we're going to lay out the circumstances that brought the Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay together to negotiate a treaty with Washington Territorial Governor Isaac Stevens. And there's no better place to kick it all off than right at the very beginning. Here's Kay Ross. There are, there are wonderful things that have happened in this state. And the state, and there have been heroic characters. You're going to hear very little about them from me. This course is essentially about the dark side of things. There is a reason for that, and that is that good things don't need correcting, and bad things do, especially bad things, that keep recurring in cycles. And that is essentially what this course is all about. It is the cycles that have afflicted us since at least the 1820s and still afflict us to this day. And if we are not aware of why these cyclical things occur, we're never going to correct them. I'm going to suggest to you that there are reasons for their recurrence. If you don't see the connection between today and yesterday, then I'm not going to belabor you with it, but I think you will. Chapter 1. Foreign Country What I want to do, first of all, is to ask you to put in your subliminal system a series of uh, themes and constants which are going to appear and reappear in this course. That way, I won't have to keep reminding you that these things are appearing and reappearing. I suppose the first thing to say about Montana is that it is big. One day, only about 15 to 20,000 years ago, give or take, during the last ice age, the southeastern edge of the Corduron ice sheet formed a massive dam of ice and rock more than 2,000 feet high across the Clark Fork River at the Purcell Trench near Sandpoint, Idaho. A massive icy lake, thousands of feet deep, formed behind the dam and extended back into western Montana. Glacial Lake Missoula submerged the area under more water than Lake Erie and Lake Ontario combined. Its irregular coastline stretched as far south as Stevensville in the Bitterroot Valley, as far north as the Mission Mountains, and as far east as Deer Lodge. At the point of the blockage, 
water seeped into cracks in the ice, warming and expanding the fissures and weakening the dam. As the cracks grew, gigantic icebergs collapsed off the face of the dam and crashed into the lake below. Cavernous spaces opened up and the water tunneled further in, eventually reaching a critical point at which the dam collapsed. The flood that resulted was cataclysmic. More water than is currently contained within all the world's rivers burst forth from the breakage and tore across the landscape of western Montana, northern Idaho, and eastern Washington at more than 60 miles an hour. As it made its way west towards the Pacific Ocean, the flood obliterated almost everything in its path. The torrent of water was so massive that its roar could be heard for 30 minutes before it arrived. It stripped away millions of years of sediment in an instant and carved up the landscape of eastern Washington. The flood slammed into a bottleneck at the Wallula Gap near Walla Walla, Washington, and ricocheted back a hundred-foot-tall crash of water that pooled throughout the Columbia River Basin. After it funneled through the gap, the water tore down the Columbia Gorge, ripping out the sides of the canyon. Then it flooded the Willamette Valley in Oregon, submerging the area that is now Portland under 400 feet of water and depositing millions of tons of nutrient-rich lake bottom sediment throughout the region. The flood then drained into the Pacific Ocean at Astoria, Oregon. The entire lake took only 48 hours to drain, and over the next 2,000 years, it refilled and drained again as many as 40 times. The story of those floods is written in the geologic record and the rugged landscape of the Pacific Northwest, but it was not accepted in the scientific community until 1942, when a geologist named Joseph Pardee published aerial photographs of giant ripples in the earth, three meters tall and 100 meters wide, on Camas Prairie near Hot Springs, Montana. But a different kind of record of the lake and the catastrophic floods exists in the oral tradition of the Kootenai, who tell of a great beaver dam bursting and creating the ripples. The Kootenai are some of Montana's aboriginal people, tracing their roots in the area back to the beginning of time. The name Kootenai, however, is something of a misnomer. We say Kootenais today, but the word Kootenai doesn't really mean anything in the language. It was a name that was given, I assume, from some other tribe, what they called us. And then it was a mispronunciation of whatever that word is, because none of the other neighboring tribes, it doesn't mean anything in their language either. So. But what, how the Kootenai always referred to themselves was through their tribal affiliation, through their specific band. In past history, the people were called Ktunaha, and the way that you pronounce it 
it can mean slightly different things. One of the ways is that it means eating food plain, you know, with no seasoning. The other translation of it, let's say we went into battle with, uh, with our enemies and one of us shot an arrow into, our, into one of our enemies and killed them. Somebody would go over there and pull the arrow back out and lick the blood off of the arrow. That's Tunacha. There are seven bands of Kootenays, the band that lived in the area that's referred to today as Montana is the Ksanka band. The band Ksanka is standing arrow. That is Vernon Finley, head of the Kootenai Culture Committee, speaking in a video made by Montana's Office of Public Instruction called How the Tribes in Montana Got Their Names, that I have a vivid memory of watching in my elementary school library, and I'm sure that pretty much any other Montana public school student of the last 20 years remembers seeing it as well. As Vernon says there, the Ksanka are the southernmost band of seven groups of Kootenai. The other bands resided in what is now Alberta and British Columbia, but the Ksanka have traditionally inhabited northwestern Montana for tens of thousands of years. They trace their roots in the area to the beginning of time, their language is known as an isolate, which means it's completely distinct from all the other language families in the area. The Salish and Ponderay people have similar origins in the area and similar misconceptions about their names. The Salish were mistakenly called flatheads when white explorers saw the sign other tribes used to refer to the Salish, which involves pointing to your head. The explorers had heard stories of people in the Pacific Northwest who had cultural customs of ritual deformation, where they would strap wooden boards to the heads of newborns to flatten and elongate the sides. Cultures around the world have practiced ceremonial head flattening for tens of thousands of years, but the people white explorers decided to call flatheads actually never followed the practice. The sign the explorers misinterpreted simply meant person or human. The Ponderays called themselves Kalispe, uh, and that became mispronounced into Kalispel. When the first uh, white man came to this area, there was a lot of the Indian men that wore a, an earring or earrings, and they used the, the shells, the abalone shells, and the different kinds of shells to, for decoration. And I was only imagining that the, that the first Frenchman that came through the area seen that protrusion coming from an ear, and so they call us Ponderé. You heard Vernon Finley again there, as well as Francis Kaluuya, a Kalispell elder, speaking in the same OPI video. The Salish, Ponderé, and other Salish-speaking tribes of the region also trace their roots in the area to time immemorial and have stories that describe the end of the last ice age. Our oral history says that we all live together as one group of Salish-speaking people, but that as the tribe got so large, um, economics made people, you know, forced us to break up into bands. That voice there is Julie Kajun a Salish educator, speaking in the same OPI video. And what I've been told is that there were five or six Salish bands 
and there were the Kelespe or the Ponderay, but there were five or six Salish bands. And they were, some of those bands were on the other side of the mountains. The Ponderay were, had a, a camp on the other side of the divide, and so did the Salish people. They had bands that lived on the other side of the mountains. That is not known by um, even many tribal members when we talk about Aboriginal territory. Montana's Aboriginal people developed complex societies in the area in the thousands of years after the Ice Age. They occupied homelands of more than 22 million acres and traveled throughout the region according to an intricate and highly structured practice of hunting, gathering, and land stewardship. Moving with the seasons, they hunted buffalo in early summer and in fall, and they gathered bitterroot, camas, huckleberries, and other plants throughout the year. It was a transient lifestyle in a way, but it was far from nomadic in the sense that while they traveled around a lot, it was anything but aimless movement. They went to specific places for specific things at specific times of year. And they had traditional places that they collected these things from, like huckleberry bushes, fishing holes, things like that. And they visited, managed, and tended to those places for generations. That's why in the old days uh, we did have... uh, uh, an awful lot of fishes uh, in the, any kind of a fresh body of water and the prairies and woods and everywhere was full of game birds and wild game animals. That was because we conserved them, because we were trying to save them for the future. The Salish, Ponderay, and Kootenai were remarkably cosmopolitan and well-traveled for the time as well. The region had an extensive network of trails and trade routes, and they built expertly crafted light boats to sail around the uh, intricate myriad waterways of western Montana. And they communicated with the other tribes in the region using a really fascinating universal sign language. This is a language that pretty much all tribes on the northern Great Plains and northern plateau area knew how to speak, and it's fundamentally ancient. Nobody knows how old this language is, how it was developed, where it came about, but it was almost universally understood throughout the Western United States. Beyond all this anthropological stuff, they were normal people with full interior lives who dealt with a lot of the same human condition stuff that we all deal with. They worked hard to provide for their families, educate their children, and better understand the world around them. And importantly, they created a society in which every member's basic needs were met. Well, my dad just took nine families at home to have their own teepees, their horses. Each teepee had a bunch of big family, nine teepees. So when they get meat, they pass it to every teepee till everybody gets enough for the winter. And the ones that are not able to go anywhere, they know they 
divides their food. Everyone gets something. They share their food with each other to help one another survive. Some of the voices you heard in there are from a documentary film called Place of the Falling Waters, made by Roy Big Crane and Thompson Smith. We're going to talk a lot more about that movie later, but the voices you heard in there were Agnes Vandenberg, who is a Salish elder, and Larry Parker, who is a Salish and Nez Perce elder. We also heard another new voice that was Alice Ignace, who is another Kalispell elder, speaking in the OPI video. For thousands of years, the Salish, Pondereau, and Kootenai lived in relative peace and prosperity, creating a society that was built on a sacred and sustainable relationship to the lands they occupied, the resources on them, and the other living things they shared them with. But beginning in the 1700s, things began to change. We're going to take a short break here, but before we get to that, here's a short story from Steve Lozar that I think really puts a lot of the stuff we've been talking about into context. See you on the other side of the break. One more case in point, if I may. Please. Um, When we were working on water rights, um, and uh, it was was a 19-year struggle, we're still struggling with it, even though it has passed. Um, but we got, um, we had a public meeting with about 400 people here in Polson. The place was packed, standing room only. There were a handful of we tribal councilmen, but we just wanted to hear from the public on the issues of water rights. But some of these people in this public place, they were unbelievable. And they'd get up and go to this microphone, and we chose to just listen. That's what we ask them. Um, and, uh, and another lady gets up and she said, I am sick and tired of people taking my water. I'm sick and tired of it. I'm an old time Montanan and I'm not gonna let it happen. These Indians are not gonna take my water. It's happened to me three times, she said. I lived in the San Fernando Valley and they came in and started taking my water there in the San Fernando Valley, you know, north of L.A. there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she said, and I was sick of that, and so I moved. I moved to, uh, I moved to uh, Klamath, Klamath Falls, Oregon. Klamath tribes are there. The same thing happened there. They came and tried to take our water, and I was sick of that too. So I've moved here to Montana, and nobody's going to do it to me here in Montana. I'm a longtime Montana, Tana, and I live in Big Fork. And, um, and I've lived there for eight years, and that was the end of it for me. I, I, I just couldn't. It, this is nonsense. Mm-hmm. And um, so I took the microphone, and I said, um, I, said uh, I, I just want to make this clear, is that... Um, Eight years, at least to me, is not a long period of time. Um, As Salish and Kootenai people, we've lived on this very reservation that you're talking about. The geological record and the archaeological record says we've been here for for 14,000 years. 
My ancestors looked down, their eyes looked down on Glacial Lake Missoula. My ancestors. And we know that that, that uh, lake emptied 10,000 years ago. So it's hard for me to understand someone saying eight years is makes them along. And all of that time we were stewards of this water. It was 14,000 years. Not a sound in that big meeting room. But, but that's, that's kind of the perspective that, that we come from. We are stewards and we've been here for generations. Um, and so these are the very people threatening to take, to take our homeland. Mm -hmm. And that are taking our homeland. Mm -hmm. Painful. Yeah. Land Grab is supported by ParentingMontana.org. Here in Montana, we want the same things for our kids. We want them to be confident, respectful, and make healthy choices. To grow these skills, I've been using tools and a process I learned from ParentingMontana.org. The website has information for me about my children at every age for dealing with chores, stress, and routines. ParentingMontana.org provides me with a way to build the skills they need to be successful. ParentingMontana.org, tools for your child's success. Brought to you by DPHHS and funded in part by SAMHSA. Hey there, Landgrab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind y'all that Landgrab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at the Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just Matt and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making Land Grab as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. And listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media, we're at LandGrabPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Landgrab. Matt here. John. We're picking up in the 1700s, as the first ripples of colonial expansion are beginning to be felt in western Montana. Now mark this very carefully. Not a single tribe 
of Plains Indians, that is east of the Continental Divide, was located in Montana on the Plains prior to 1600. Not a single Indian tribe. What had happened? Well, what had happened is a kind of a domino effect or a marbles in a tube effect. As the tide of European settlement spread on the eastern seaboard, it pushed the tribes in the area west. Which in turn pushed on the tribe immediately to their west. And on and on and on and on. So that very shortly after the beginning of settlement on the Atlantic coast, violent upheavals and changes were taking place in the Indian, among the Indian people on the Great Plains. And a ripple effect of displacement advanced westward toward Montana. The Salish, Ponderay, and Kootenai soon found themselves facing competition from other tribes, including the Blackfeet, for the buffalo hunting grounds east of the Divide. At the same time, waves of foreign disease began sweeping through, devastating all native populations. The acquisition of horses and guns also increased the frequency and lethality of conflict. This combination of pressures forced the tribes west of the Continental Divide. Although they continued to venture east for seasonal buffalo hunts, they could no longer live there permanently. The Kootenai, settled in the Tobacco Plains region, which is right up in the tip-top northwest corner of Montana, right by the Canadian border. The Ponderay settled around Flathead Lake in the Flathead Valley, just north of Missoula. And the Salish settled in the Bitterroot Valley, a beautiful, long, fertile valley directly south of Missoula. On the way to their seasonal buffalo hunts, the Salish would often travel through the mountains toward the plains via the narrow canyon on the east side of the Missoula Valley, where the Blackfeet would often wait in ambush. The Salish began to call the canyon the place chilled with fear. The conflict with the Blackfeet was one thing, but infectious disease was something completely different. From 1780 to 1805, smallpox decimated native populations, to the extent that when Lewis and Clark arrived at Traveler's Rest in the Missoula Valley in 1805 and became the first white Americans to interact with Chief Three Eagles and the Salish people, their population had already declined 45% in just the previous 35 years. A white man is bound to get here, isn't he? So I'll get him here in a hurry. To spare a quick few words for Lewis and Clark, who have been talked absolutely to death. What I would like to do is to explain why Lewis and Clark came. It wasn't because they just loved to walk around in the hills. The important thing to understand about the Corps of Discovery is that they were there to lay claim. America was a small little country on the eastern seaboard at this point. The Union was only as of 1800, uh, what, 10 years old, that it was extremely weak. But its westward border, which was the Ohio River Valley and Trans-Appalachia at this time, was being pushed farther and farther west toward the Mississippi every single day. And Thomas Jefferson wanted to grow a new empire to compete with the other European colonial powers in the Americas. He knew that the westward movement was inevitable. He knew that 
wherever, whatever, whoever was in front of the westward moving Americans would either clash with them or the Americans would join, either the Spanish or the French. Jefferson saw in the failure to control the West the dissolution of the Union. That as of 1802, Jefferson was prepared to attack with an army, an American army, the possessor of Louisiana territory, whoever it was, Spain or France or anybody else. This man meant business because he saw, foresaw here, the end of the American Union unless he could acquire Louisiana. That is what brought Lewis and Clark to Montana. Notice that Lewis and Clark did not stop at the Rocky Mountains. They found them, sure enough, and guaranteed that they were indeed there, but they didn't stop there. They went all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Why? Jefferson was a very ambitious man. The Louisiana Purchase famously bought out France's claimed lands, which were from the Mississippi River to the Continental Divide, for three cents an acre. But the Pacific Northwest, west of the Divide, including western Montana, was contested territory. The British and the Russians, and indeed the French, were active in the, what we now call the Pacific Northwest. It's perfectly obvious that Jefferson aimed to stake a claim beyond Louisiana. Lewis and Clark's mission was to put the American diplomatic stamp on the Louisiana Purchase lands and the unpurchased lands west of the Divide. Now, the expedition reached the mouth of the Yellowstone River on April 25th, 1805. It spent a month at Great Falls. It reached Three Forks on July 25th, left Montana via Roller Pass in August, returned to Montana July 1st, 1806, returned to Yellowstone River August 3rd, got back to St. Louis September 3rd, 1806. Now, that's a somewhat speeded up version of the trip, but that's, uh, that's all we're going to do with it. There are 100 maps. Go get them and go look at them. The expedition resulted in the following consequences. There was a vast body of geographical knowledge now loose in the east about Montana. The contacts with the Indians, with the exception of the Blackfeet, which I'll talk about in a moment, was established and it was universally friendly, which mattered. There was, as I say, a heightened interest in an understanding of the West in all of the East. And firm diplomatic, I shouldn't put this one last, really, I should have put it first, a firm diplomatic claim on all of the Trans-Mississippi West. And it was clear by the time that they left that they had successfully blazed the trail for the American way before they even got back to St. Louis. Now, when Lewis and Clark were on their way quite close to St. Louis in 1806, they encountered uh, between August 3rd and August 20th, no fewer than 11 fur parties bound up the Missouri River. The second theme Please tuck it in the back of your minds, is this. Montana 
was enormously richly endowed with natural resources. It was perhaps the richest fur country in North America in the 1820s and the 1830s. After Lewis and Clark came the fur traders, largely Frenchmen and Canadians. None of the Salish, Ponderé, or Kootenai tribes participated extensively in the fur trade, but it did mark the first imposition of a mercantilist capitalist system they had to transact with for guns, tools, and horses. The fur traders also introduced alcohol into the area. French trappers spread throughout the region, and when they ventured through the narrow canyon the Salish took to hunt buffalo, they were shocked by the bones and remains left by the many skirmishes with the Blackfeet and named the place Le Porte de l'Enfer, or Hell's Gate. In the 1820s, Canadian trappers with the Hudson Bay Company brought a number of Iroquois into the territory in the hopes that they would enlist the Salish to trap for the company. Fur companies got rather desperate, and they imported a group of Eastern Indians, the Iroquois, to train, for instance, the Flatheads and the Shoshones and the Nespers how to trap, how to trade, how to go out and bring them into these posts. The problem was that the Iroquois knew a good thing when they saw one. They were very much admired by the Flatheads, the Nespers, and so forth. Uh, they were looked up to. Why bother with all this fussy business trapping first? So they didn't. But importantly, they did regale their companions with stories of the Catholic Jesuit black robes who had sent missionaries to their eastern homelands in the 1600s. The stories of the Iroquois reminded the Salish of a vision held by a leader named Shining Shirt in the late 1700s that prophesied strange men in black robes that would come and teach the people a new power. Seeking the help of this spiritual power in their conflicts against disease and the Blackfeet, the Salish sent out four delegations to St. Louis to search for the black robes in the 1830s. The first two expeditions died or were killed, and the third one reached St. Louis and earned a promise that the missionaries would be sent, but those missionaries never materialized. Finally, in 1841, after the fourth delegation, Father Pierre-Jean de Smet arrived in the Bitterroot Valley and established the St. Mary's Mission by Stevensville. Uh, de Smet is a remarkable man, an enormously courageous man, usually wandering around with a single pack horse in the Rocky Mountains. He was peripatetic. He was antsy. He couldn't stay in one place. He was constantly moving. And once the mission construction was started in September 1841, not a good time to be wandering around in the mountains, he takes a pack horse and goes over to Fort Vancouver to get seed to bring back for the flatheads to plant. The missionaries brought the first seeds and cattle, built the first mill in the area, and set about instructing the Salish in agriculture and the Christian tradition. But relations were not idyllic. religiously attended mass. The chapel was a big one. It could seat 500 people. 
They learned the Lord's Prayer in English, the Hail Mary, the Credo, the Ten Commandments, the Acts of Faith, Hope, Charity, and Contrition. And all was proceeding well. Marriages were sanctified in the church, and they insisted on agricultural pursuits and tried desperately to get the Flatheads to stop going out on the annual buffalo hunt. Very shortly after the Jesuits arrived, they became convinced that the only way to convert the Jesu or the Salish was to have them settle in one spot so that they could teach them Catholicism, but also you know, replace the, the hunting way of life with an agriculture basis of life. Now all was well between 1841, the founding of the mission, and 1846. In 1850, the mission was abandoned completely, and this split between the Jesuits and the Flatheads is known as the Flathead apostasy. The Jesuits wanted total conversion from the tribe, but the Salish wanted to supplement their current religious practices with Christianity, not completely replace them. When the Indians returned in 1846 from their summer hunt, which they weren't supposed to go on, but they did, they had changed completely. Their whole attitude had changed. Father Ravalli, who was one of the priests at the mission, put it this way. We were not a little astonished. They took up their old-time barbarous yells, which we had not heard since we first came among them. They drew off with their lodges. They sold us grudgingly a little dry meat. They had given themselves up to their old war dances and to savage obscenity and to shameless excesses of the flesh. We know that we were not to blame for such a change, and we bewailed it the more when we saw that they kept on constantly getting worse. Now, from 1846 to 1850, there were a few little incidents when things improved a bit, but by 1850, things were so bad that the Jesuits pulled out, they sold the mission to for which became Fort Owen to Major John Owen, a trader who established a trading post. What happened? What had happened? While the Jesuits asked the Indians to study Catholicism or Christianity, they themselves made no study whatsoever of Indian religion. And I think that they confused form with substance. I mean, our effort was to, is to instruct them in our faith. And so the Indian faith was very secondary and it, it didn't really, I mean, we didn't make much effort to learn it because we were trying to teach them the, uh, the, the, uh, the new, the gospel and all of that. And our whole effort was in that, in that uh, direction. I think that the Jesuit way of viewing their religion as the only way, the one true religion, is very ethnocentric. But I think that constitutes cultural invasion. When you determine that your way is superior to another group of people, and you go in no matter what way, whether it's as a missionary or as a soldier, and you decide that you're going to eradicate someone else's religion or someone else's culture, 
because you, you deem that yours is superior and theirs is inferior, that's invasion. Voices we heard there uh, were from Place of the Falling Waters as well. We had Reverend Ignatius Dumbeck, who was a missionary in Montana as early as the 20s. And we also had Betty White, who is a Salish historian. Some themes in those clips to be aware of as the show goes on is this lack of desire to understand the indigenous perspective and this association of agriculture with the enlightened ultimate way of being. Now, DeSmet in 1846 does a startling thing. He's headed back down the river to raise money for, to establish other missions in the Rocky Mountains. Before he left, he gathered his charges together and made a goodbye speech. And in an incidental sort of way, he then said that he thought he would stop in and establish a mission among the Blackfeet. Now, the, the Salish or the, or the Flatheads and the Blackfeet were ancient, ancient enemies. The Blackfeet were constantly raiding as far as Hellgate right here and killing the Flatheads, who were a very pacific people. They were mortal enemies. For DeSmet now to suggest that he was going to take the same big medicine, the protective medicine, which the Flatheads now have, and give it to their mortal enemies, the Blackfeet, must have been terribly, terribly disturbing to them. The increased attempts by the Jesuits to stamp out traditional practices and their establishment of a mission among the Blackfeet led the Salish to withdraw their support and protection. And in 1849, the Jesuits sold the mission to trader John Owen and moved to the mission at Coeur d'Alene. But the Jesuit absence was short-lived. And by 1854, Father Adrian Hawken founded the St. Ignatius Mission in the Mission Valley on land that, just a year later, would become part of the Flathead Indian Reservation. We're going to take another break here and then come back and talk about how this combination of pressures led the Salish, the Ponderé, and the Kootenai to sit down and negotiate a treaty with Washington Territorial Governor Isaac Stevens in 1855. And we're going to dive into the negotiations and the treaty itself, which is a really important document for the rest of the show. Land Grab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference. And the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely to our great state. You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. Welcome back to Land Grab. I'm John, here with Matt. Matt here. Our last part of the show today is all about the Hellgate Treaty. 
The treaty itself came in July 1855, as the Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay had been facing decades of devastation from disease and pressure from other tribes, new settlers, and missionaries. But before we dive into the specifics of the Hellgate Treaty, we need to talk a little bit about the treaty-making process as a whole. Uh, none of the 370 treaties that we made with the Indians, 370 treaties which now reside in the National Archives, ever recognized for one moment that the Indian was fundamentally a nomadic person. Federal authority over the Indians was divided between the War Department on the one hand and the Department of Interior on the other hand, both pursuing vacillating and often completely contradictory policies. <clears throat> the Indian had absolutely no concept of the private ownership of property. To him, all land was communally owned to be used by everyone. But this concept yielded to an even deeper concept, which was religious. You say, well, but the Indian was polytheistic. Be very careful about that. He was in some ways, he was not in others. But the land was God's and, or the great spirits, and it had been loaned to man only, not for him to own, but for him to use. And that being the case, this land should be treated with great care. It was on loan from God. You did not own it. None of the treaties that we made, 370 of them, ever recognized this spiritual aspect of the land upon which the Indian lived. Private ownership, that's what the treaties were based on. And saying to the Indians, you will by God become a property owner or else. When the original 13 American colonies gained independence from Britain, the federal government was given the authority to negotiate treaties with indigenous tribes as sovereign nations. Initially, those treaties mainly served to establish territorial boundaries between the tribes and white settlers. The government usually agreed to keep settlers out of tribal lands, and indigenous nations agreed to stay out of American settled areas. But the American government quickly set its sights on expanding its territorial holdings across the continent as soon as it possibly could, as we touched on earlier with Lewis and Clark and all that. And they needed a mechanism to secure title to vast swaths of indigenous land. Things fundamentally changed with a series of Supreme Court rulings issued by Chief Justice John Marshall in the 1820s that defined the relationship between tribes and the American government as resembling, quote, that of a ward to his guardian. These rulings bestowed a one-sided plenary authority, where the government gave itself license to act on these tribes' behalf. Treaty-making beyond that point changed into a means by which the government extinguished indigenous nations' title to vast tracts of their homelands, and confined them onto protectorate reservations under federal authority. 
It was within this broad aim of land acquisition that Washington Territorial Governor Isaac Stevens arrived at Council Grove in the Missoula Valley in July of 1855 to negotiate a treaty with the Salish, Ponderay, and Kootenai. Remember, out of the land that is now Montana, everywhere east of the divide had been purchased in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. But western Montana had been under contested ownership with Britain until the Oregon Treaty of 1849 made it part of Washington Territory, so that's why Stevens was there. So Isaac Stevens is a really uh, interesting guy, a really representative guy of a certain type of American archetype. Stevens was five foot three, and he had a stormy temper, relentless ambition, and a, a whole host of daddy issues, you might say. He came from an extremely waspy Puritan background in New England and uh, was appointed governor of Washington Territory when he was only 35 after graduating from West Point and going through some notable exploits in the Mexican-American War. He had first entered western Montana two years before, in 1853, when he journeyed through with an expedition team to survey a route for a transcontinental railroad to the Pacific. Stevens was convinced that the fertile lands of the region would attract loads of settlers once a railroad could be built. So he returned in 1855 with the explicit directive to confer as much land as possible to the federal government and get the tribes to remove to a reservation of 2,000 square miles. Stevens, practicing the age-old adage that time is money, planned to negotiate treaties with every tribe in the Washington Territory in just two weeks, and had an initial plan to say that every tribe in the region, including the Salish, the Kootenai, the Ponderay, as well as the Spokanes and the Coeur d'Alene tribe, were all actually one tribe and should be confined to a single reservation. Now, before we get to the treaty itself, one thing to describe quickly up here is the tribal governance structure. Americans uh, then and now uh, were and are obsessed with the unitary executive theory of leadership, where one elected, quote-unquote, elected leader uh, calls all the shots, has executive decision-making, what he or she or they says goes. But in almost all tribal, tribal governmental structures, leaders were elected to serve for specific purposes, to lead war parties, to negotiate with the government, to lead a hunting group, etc. But the decisions that tribes arrived at, especially major decisions like this, were communally arrived upon. So when you hear about treaty negotiations, when you hear throughout the rest of the show about other negotiations the tribes go through, they may be presented as the words or the opinion of one leader, but in essentially every single case, these are communal decisions reached through some kind of, of consensus among the whole community. In calling the tribes to negotiate a treaty, Stevens expressly gave word that his intent was to establish territorial boundaries and settle a peace with the Blackfeet. With that understanding, the tribes selected leaders to represent their positions and met with Governor Stevens. Yeah, the, uh, the three signatories on the uh, Hellgate Treaty, the de facto leaders, if you will, were uh, Chief Victor of the Salish, who is the direct son of Three Eagles, the chief who met Lewis and Clark. You had Alexander, who was the chief of the Ponderay, and Michel, who was the chief of the Kootenai. 
the Aksmaknik thought of themselves as the youngest brother of all of creation and carried themselves in this universe that way and thought of themselves in a way that where they respected everything that was here because we survive only because of everything that is here. That's the way, that's the worldview that they carried themselves on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, the, the Western worldview that Governor Stevens was trying to promote, the important part of it was property ownership, owning the land. And the idea that you could own part of the earth that was here before us and will always be here and will be here long after we're gone, that idea was totally foreign to the, to the Aksmaknik. So that point of property ownership produced some of the largest misunderstanding between the two cultures, between the two worldviews. It was much to the surprise and even the chagrin of tribal leaders when Isaac Stevens brought up the subject of land sessions on the second day of negotiations. Tribal leaders rejected the idea out of hand, and you can understand why. As they saw the situation, they were there to talk about a peace with the Blackfeet. They had never gone to war with the settlers or the government, so why should they have to sign a treaty and give up so much land? But Stevens persisted, promising the tribes that if they agreed to establish reservations, they could live their traditional way of life without interference from the government, settlers, or the Blackfeet. Now when the Kootenai chief came down to Council Grove to the treaty negotiations, the important, the important thing to him for the survival of his people was to be able to continue on to go where he wanted to go, to go and gather th throughout the territory, go and gather all of the foods and the medicines and to do all of the traditional practices that they had always done and to survive in the, in, in the same way that they always had. Their travel was, start, was being restricted and everything at that point and so what he wanted to do was to make sure that you know, he establishes that, that part of it, that right. And the other part in concession, he was willing to say, okay, then you go ahead and say you own, you know, you own the land, you own the, the, the trees, you own the rivers, you, you go ahead and say you own the land. As long as we can continue to do what we always have done, and you can do what you want to do, and if we, as long as we coexist in peace together and you stop killing us, then, then it can work. And that was, the, that was the view that he brought to the treaty negotiations. After seven long days, the tribal leaders reluctantly agreed to the deal that they understood Stevens to be proposing and signed the Hellgate Treaty. So in the Treaty of 1855, I once had somebody ask me, well, where's your title to the, to the land? Well, my title to the land is the Treaty of 1855. 
That voice you're hearing is Dan Decker. Dan was a lawyer for the CSKT for many years, and this audio is from a presentation he gave back in 2010, marking the 100th anniversary of the allotment of the Flathead Reservation. But it's an interesting document. It was a negotiated treaty whereby tribes gave up land to the United States so the United States could get title in that land. And in return for that was a guarantee that a portion of that land would become permanent tribal homeland. The tribe's decision to sign was due to the pressures they faced and the promises that Stevens made them. They understood that they were giving up exclusive use of millions of acres of their traditional lands, but they believed that they were securing the reservation as a lasting, sovereign homeland where they could live their traditional lifestyles. We reserved this this ground, this holy ground, for ourselves. And we did that by negotiating with the federal government. We didn't make war on them. and they didn't make war on us, but we could see what was happening. We're, we're studiers. We look and listen. And so we reserved this re- reservation. And we reserved it for ourselves for as long as the grass grows and the winds blow. Okay? We, our traditional homeland here is about 20 million acres. And, uh, but we reserved this heartland for ourselves. They were also told that they would be able to continue traveling beyond the reservation to hunt and gather in the usual way. What Michelle brought to the treaty negotiations when, when he wanted to maintain the right to travel throughout the Aboriginal territory and to continue to do all of the things that we've always done, that, that became included. He, he, he stuck to that. He stuck to insisting upon that, and, and, it, and it became included as part of the Hellgate Treaty, was that the tribes would retain the right to, to travel and to gather and to hunt and to fish and to do all of their traditional practices in all of their aboriginal territory. And that was a, that, that, that was a, huge, a huge part of the treaty that has very significant impact on us today. The treaty also held provisions that required the government to build a school, a sawmill, and a doctor's office, and provide education and vocational training to the tribes. So from that perspective, you can understand how they came to make such a difficult compromise and to try to preserve their people and their way of life in the face of the immense pressures they'd been confronting for a century at this point. But the agreement the tribes believed they were signing, and the one that Stevens wrote down on paper, were dramatically different. The differences were rooted in a little miscommunication and a whole lot of outright deception. Father Hawken, the founder of the St. Ignatius Mission, was present at the negotiations and went on to write that, quote, not a tenth of what was said was understood by either side, and that Stevens's translators spoke middling Salish and did not understand or communicate the tribal perspective. The tribes also could not agree on a single reservation site, 
and so chiefs Alexander and Michel of the Ponderay and Kootenay picked a site north of Missoula, centered on Flathead Lake and the St. Ignatius Mission that became what was then called the Jocko Reservation. And Chief Victor and the Salish picked their homelands in the Bitterroot Valley, south of Missoula, which became the Lolo Reservation. The tribes were assured by Stevens himself that when they moved to the reservation sites, they would not be interfered with, and the lands they were reserving would be, quote, for the exclusive use and benefit of their people. Stevens and his underling, Lieutenant John Mullen, had led the Kootenai and the Ponderay to believe that the boundaries of their reservation would extend up to the Canadian border. But the language in the treaty stipulated a boundary that bisected Flathead Lake. The Salish believed that they had reserved land in the Bitterroot as a permanent home, but the treaty stated that the government would survey the valley and the president would determine who was best suited to live there, the Salish or white settlers. Victor, negotiator on behalf of the Salish, did not want to move his people from the Bitterroot Valley. The way to get him to go along with that was to say, as the treaty did, well, that might be possible, we will survey the Bitterroot Valley. And if the president de determines that it's fitting for a reservation for you, a reservation may be surveyed out of the Bitterroot Valley for the Salish people. The other thing was that people were not to settle in the Bitterroot Valley until that commitment of the treaty was fulfilled. That wasn't fulfilled. People started settling in the Bitterroot Valley. Stevens also took it upon himself to insert an obscure clause into Article 6 of the treaty, reserving the right for the government to allot lands within the reservation according to the same terms of a treaty made with the Omaha tribe of Nebraska two years before. The record of Hellgate Treaty negotiations shows that this article was never proposed or explained to the tribes, who had likely never even heard of the Omaha tribe let alone become familiar with the nuances of their treaty with the federal government. Those ambiguities, contradictions, and falsehoods would cause decades of tensions and struggle for the tribes that began immediately after the document was signed. But Stevens would not be around to see it. He negotiated his treaty and he left as quickly as he could. Before 1855 was over, he had instituted martial law in the Yakima, Washington area as he led a brutal three-year war against the tribes of northern Idaho and eastern Washington. And on September 1st, 1862, Stevens was killed by a Confederate bullet to the head as he led his Union troops in a charge against some Confederate ramparts during a massive thunderstorm in the Battle of Chantilly in the Civil War. But while the Hellgate Treaty was signed in 1855, it was not ratified by Congress until 1859, placing the tribes in a state of limbo. A year after the treaty in 1856, Frank Woody, James Holt, Bill Madison, Pork West, and a man with the last name of Jackson arrived to build the first permanent white settlement in the Missoula Valley. Near the mouth of the canyon, the Salish and the Blackfeet would ambush each other in. 
John Mullen met them a few years later in 1859 when he built his military road through the valley along the trail Salish people had taken for generations along the road to Buffalo. And in 1860, Frank Warden and C.P. Cap Higgins loaded up a pack train of mules in Walla Walla, Washington and led it over the mountains into the valley, bringing the goods to furnish the store they intended to build. When they arrived and opened their store, it signaled the founding of the settlement they called Hellgate. Two years later, Granville Stewart and his brother James found gold in what they aptly named Gold Creek by what's now Garrison, and a new age in western Montana was born. But the thing that it is imperative that you remember is this, that it was the miner that the farmers came to feed, it was the miner that the merchants came to sell to, and that the thieves came to steal from. And when you have merchants and farmers and thieves, as you well know, you have what we commonly call civilization. All right, that is going to do it for our first chapter of Land Grab, Season 1. So just to quickly recap, in this episode we've seen how the Salish, Ponderé, and Kootenai started out with more than 22 million acres of active use. We saw how they got pushed west of the Continental Divide by the encroachment of other eastern tribes before eventually getting shunted onto the current boundaries of the Flathead Reservation when Isaac Stevens and the federal government decided that it was time to build a railroad. Next week, we're going to pick things up in the 1870s and the 1880s, Montana's territorial days. We're going to meet the murderer's row of frontier capitalists, that will propel the young territory of Montana into a new age and put the Lolo Reservation of the Bitterroot Salish under attack. Your podcast is land grab, right? And that the biggest land grab of all is the Northern Pacific land grab. 16% of the best land in Montana was given to the Northern Pacific Railroad. Here begins the real story of heavy mining in Montana, and as a consequence, here begins the real story of Montana's economic growth. Here begins the story of events that extend their influence far, far into the 20th century. Thanks so much for listening to the first chapter of Land Grab Season 1. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show. So if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more land grab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website. If you've stuck around to hear about our sources for this chapter, I'll get into that for y'all now. 
Since this chapter largely deals with the pre-colonial history of the Salish, Ponderay, and Kootenai, it's probably best to start off by saying that we have worked hard to make sure that our understanding of indigenous history and the understanding we present in the show is based on what we learned from indigenous people and indigenous sources as much as possible. To learn about the history of the Salish, Ponderay, and Kootenai, the absolute best place to start with is with the published materials from the Salish Kalispe Culture Committee and the Kootenai Culture Committee. Regarding the things that we covered in this chapter, there are a few of their books that I would definitely recommend. The Kootenai Culture Committee has a book called Tanaha Legends. Tanaha is spelled K-T-U-N-A-X-A that explores the origins and the long history of the tribe. The Salish Kalispe Culture Committee has a great book called A Brief History of the Salish and Ponderay Tribes, and another one called The Salish People and the Lewis and Clark Expedition that give a great account of pre-colonial Montana. Some other places to learn about indigenous history in Montana are the Office of Public Instruction's Indian Education for All website, which features tons of great video interviews with experts and educators from all of Montana's tribes. Another great website is the CSKT's Natural Resource Department's online education portal, which has tons of resources to learn about the ecological history of the tribes and Western Montana. We'll link to both of those in our show notes. If you're looking for some denser, academic-type reading, I'd recommend two pieces of scholarship. First, a dissertation by Heather M. Cahoon called For Better or For Worse, Flathead Indian Reservation Governance and Sovereignty. Heather is a member of the CSKT, a poet, and the director of the American Indian Governance and Policy Institute at the University of Montana. And her dissertation is a thorough and engaging look at the history of the tribes through a governmental lens. Another dissertation I'd recommend is a paper by William F. Arnold called As Long as the Water Falls, an ethno-historical study in the socioeconomic underdevelopment and cultural identity of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, using the events leading up to and surrounding the construction and future control of Kerr Dam. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll hope to see you next week for Chapter 2. Land Grab is written and produced by me, John Hooks, along with Matt Newman and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped us as we've worked on this thing, all the friends and family and colleagues who have helped and encouraged and advised us as we've worked on it. I'd also specifically like to thank Ken Toole, Steve Lozar, Thompson Smith, and Roy Big Crane for all giving us invaluable insights and materials that have made the show what it is. I also, of course, have to deeply thank everyone who has chipped in and contributed to the show so far. Your support has been invaluable.